Good morning. My name is David Wolin. I'm one of the lay elders here at New Covenant, part of the preaching team. I have to tell you, our text this morning, Revelation 19, 1 through 10, is a magnificent pairing for the first Sunday of Advent. I am so excited to be in this book and studying it together. But if you weren't here last Sunday, and I know we have some visitors here on this holiday weekend, we need to give you a little bit of backstory and context coming into Revelation 19. Otherwise, it might feel for you a little bit like if we were to jump in and start watching the last 20 or 30 minutes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, movies. Uh, it might seem like, um, like that because the, the previous 12 hours, of course, long 12 hours of, of cinema and story are necessary to fully appreciate what happens on the mountaintop royal courtyard in Gondor. This was the scene that was in my mind as I was preparing for this message. There's a lot of shared imagery. So in that moment, if you've seen the movies or read the books, you might remember that now Sauron, the enemy of all that's evil, has been cast down, and now the rightful king, Aragorn, he's wearing a crown, his reign has begun, and all around him are these people, his friends, who serve him, who know him. And there's this joyous golden glow of celebration, of relief, of freedom. But then the sea of people part, and the king sees his bride. So Tolkien was borrowing the imagery of Revelation when he wrote his masterpiece. And as good as it is, it's just fiction. This is the real thing. This is the factual future. This is the future of history. And like Revelation, like all of Revelation, chapters 17 and 18 and 19, they're all part of this vision that God gave the elderly Apostle John. It was an apocalyptic vision revealed not with cinema, but with symbols. It was a vision to share with the churches, many of whom were suffering then. And it was to encourage them to endure and to remain steadfast in their faith in Jesus. And it's the purpose of Revelation for us today. And so Revelation's message is shown like a collage made of clippings and snippets from the Old Testament books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Genesis and the Psalms. And an angelic being accompanies John through it all, taking him back and forth between heaven and earth and showing him the unseen reality of what has been and what is and what will be. And it's done largely through symbolic representations. So in chapter 17, we were shown a great beast with many horns, and it symbolized the authoritarian power of the state throughout the centuries, which has so often been used for evil and to persecute God's people. And right with the beast, seated on it, is a prostitute beautifully adorned, for the purpose of enticing and seducing, but the text reveals that she is deadly. She's holding a cup. The angel tells John that she's drunk on the blood of the saints, and symbolically this woman represents all people in all places who reject God, who are enticed away, who are lured away from embracing the Lord Jesus Christ as their God and King and are in, instead embracing all this world has to offer as God alternatives. And so when this passage speaks about sexual immorality, that's also symbolic because it's far more expansive than sexual sin. It's everything. 
in our lives. Our affections and our loyalties and our worship given over to something other than the creator who deserves it from us. And when we do that, it's like a betrayal. It's an unfaithfulness, a breaking of covenant loyalty. And the symbolism doesn't stop there. So much like might happen in the dreams that we have, one character morphs into another. And we learn that the prostitute's name is Babylon, which is the great city, the city of man, the world order apart from God. So they're one and the same, like two sides of a coin, and they all, it all comes under God's judgment in one climactic moment, and that's where chapter 18 ends. And then our passage today begins with a scene change, and we're taken up into heaven to the place where the king is on his throne. And gathered all around him are those who love him and who serve him. And we hear something that's like a worship service combined with a victory celebration. And it's all intended to provoke from us a response. There's a transformational intent to this passage, and I'll summarize it like this. Revelation 19 is calling us to hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus because there are two unstoppable, irreversible events in history or excuse me, events on the horizon, God will bring justice through judgment and the lamb will unite himself to his bride, his redeemed people. And so in summary, that's where we're headed today. And we'll start at the beginning. So there's this evocative power of a chorus of voices that's hard for John to describe. In verse one, he says it's something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven. And the first word that they speak in a deafening unison is hallelujah. Did you notice that there are four hallelujahs in these 10 verses? Hallelujah repeats over and over. And that's, it's a familiar word to us. I think actually the, the word hallelujah is possibly the most familiar Hebrew word commonly used in the English language, not just in church, but just in our culture at large. We hear it bandied about in all kinds of contexts, perhaps something just as simple as sitting at a really long red light, like sometimes happens at Crane and Randall, right? And you could be sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting, and maybe it's that time where the light changes and you didn't get your arrow and you have to wait a whole nother cycle, but finally it changes and it wouldn't feel odd to hear someone say, oh, hallelujah. And by that, of course, you understand their meaning. It's finally, or oh, I'm glad. It's finally about time. And there's countless other scenarios like that where people utter a hallelujah without realizing what they're saying. They're taking the Lord's name in vain because that's what hallelujah means. It's a compound word combining the Hebrew halal, which means praise, and yah, which is an abbreviation of Yahweh, the personal covenant name of God revealed in the Old Testament to Moses. So hallelujah means praise Yahweh. But here's something truly amazing, and I didn't know this until I started studying this passage to preach it. Did you know the word hallelujah is foreign to the New Testament. You can search all four Gospels, the entire book of Acts, and every epistle right up until Revelation 19. You will not find 
a single hallelujah. Hallelujah is all over the Old Testament, most notably in the Psalms. So the last five Psalms each begin and end with a hallelujah, and there's a really important grouping of five Psalms called the Hallel Psalms. They're Psalms 113 through 118. But in the New Testament, hallelujah is absent until right here in Revelation 19. It's almost as though since the birth of Christ, heaven has been waiting for something. So let's take a look at these four hallelujahs and the four reasons that the text gives us for them. Reason number one, hallelujah, because God has brought justice through judgment. And the voices in this chorus responding to the judgment presumably include the voices that we heard way back in chapter 6 when the seven seals of the scroll were being opened and at the fifth seal, this would be chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 in Revelation, at the fifth seal, John saw this. The souls of those who had been slaughtered because of the word of God and the testimony they had given, they cried out with a loud voice, Lord, the one who is holy and true, how long until you judge those who live on the earth and avenge our blood? So they were each given a white robe, and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who were going to be killed, just as they had been. Perhaps you've seen a, a news clip of a courtroom in the moment when a murder victim's family is present and the judge or the jury pronounces a guilty verdict. It's a moment when the emotion just cannot be contained. It erupts from the depths of their souls, a, a relief that justice has prevailed, and it's a relief that finally brings closure. I think we're seeing something similar here in Revelation 19, except it's not the victim's families, it's the victims themselves and on a scale incalculable. It's the totality of all the sin and evil from every generation of history and a judgment wide enough and deep enough for all the combined evils of every Hitler and Stalin and Putin of history. And in chapter 6, all of those voices of those who had been slain and martyred for the sake of Jesus were crying out, how long, Lord, until you bring justice? Well, in chapter 19, that time is now. And it breaks forth in praise to God. It erupts. Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. And that brings us to the second reason for hallelujah. Reason number two, hallelujah, because God's justice is eternal and final. Sometimes in our world, the guilty don't have to pay the full penalty for their evil, for their crime. Whether it's for reasons of corruption or incompetence or just the failings of human beings to ascertain truth. 
whatever the case, they get to walk free. I'm thinking back to the courtroom illustration. If you're the family of someone who was murdered and you heard on the news that that murderer was getting to walk free on a technicality, your outrage would be justifiable. The grief would just flood back in. This happens in our world far too often. Here in the U.S. and especially also in other places around the world, especially for the rich and powerful. But this can never happen with God's justice. It never will. The multitude is saying hallelujah because God's judgment can't be reversed or overturned. It says the smoke ascends forever and ever. And God's word doesn't exaggerate. This is eternity. And it's a picture of hell. Do you feel a mix of emotions when you hear that? I do. The smoke isn't just coming from the world system that made evil possible. It doesn't say its smoke ascends. It says her smoke ascends forever and ever. That's a personal pronoun. The notorious prostitute represents people. That's sobering and scary. But it's also an expression of God's goodness and his holiness. Because if God did not judge evil justly, he would not be good. And the wrath of God is the right and perfect expression of God's goodness when he confronts evil. Now, when human beings, even in a courtroom, issue judgment on each other, there's always room for error. But not with our Creator. He gets it perfectly right. And so from the vantage point of heaven, there's no sadness in this moment. God's judgment is eternal, and that means evil can't ever return. There is no sequel to the Bible. Evil does not and cannot resurrect itself. It's gone forever. So then we come to the third hallelujah. This is verse 4. It says, The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And we've seen these 24 elders and these four living creatures throughout the book of Revelation. They show up again and again. And they don't add here any new reason for hallelujah. They're giving their agreement to it. It's like heaven's stamp of approval for everything that's just been said. And then we hear a voice coming from the throne that says, Praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Whose voice is this? It could be the voice of Jesus. It could also be the voice of a herald speaking on the king's behalf. But in any case, the outcome is the same, which is that everyone swivels their heads away from the destruction to gaze on something far better and more glorious. The gaze of all heaven and all God's people is now fixed on God himself. And the fourth and the final hallelujah breaks forth, and with it come two more reasons for hallelujah. So reason number three, hallelujah, because the Lord, the Almighty, reigns. And of course, God has always reigned. His throne was never in jeopardy. But up until this moment, all of creation has been waiting in this already but not yet tension. With the incarnation of Jesus, the kingdom of God 
was inaugurated, Jesus said so, but it had not come in its fullness. Even right now today, we who are believing and are holding to the testimony of Jesus, for us, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. We're still living in the tension. Our hearts are longing for Revelation 19 for the moment when we can say, along with all of God's people, the kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. These words, also from Revelation, may have brought a melody to to mind for you. They did for me. Handel's Messiah is a musical masterpiece that we associate with Christmas, and so much of that text comes right out of Revelation, including verse 6 of chapter 19. Now, if you happened to have a King James Version in front of you, the words that you'd be reading are these. Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I almost sung them. Uh, the, verse 6 is the text of the Hallelujah Chorus. And that makes sense, right? Because this is a chorus of hallelujahs right here in these 10 verses. Now, before we started this series in Revelation, the preaching team, we were outlining the book of Revelation and laying it out on the preaching calendar, seeing where it would fall. And we, we saw that it would take us all the way to the last Sunday before Christmas. And I have to confess to you, at the time, I was looking at it and thinking, oh, that might feel a little odd, preaching Revelation during Advent. Wow, was I wrong. I had not appreciated the fact that there are two Advents in the Bible and they reinforce one another. In our celebration of one, we intermingle the promises of the other. The word Advent simply means coming or arrival. And the Advent season is all about intentional, worshipful anticipation of God's promises fulfilled. And so during Advent, we enter ourselves back into the storyline of salvation history past, back to the time when God's people were still looking forward to the Messiah who had not yet come and were clinging to God's great promises. And and as we do, we also ourselves anticipate the future of salvation history. Like God's people of old, we're looking forward to how God will fulfill his great promise. We're awaiting the second advent And one day, the second coming of Christ will also be an historical event that we'll look back on with wonder and awe. How will we celebrate that day into eternity? God only knows, but I'll bet it's better than how we celebrate Christmas, as good as that is. You know, it's interesting for most parents, this is true for me, there are two greatest of days that stand out in their lives. One is the day that their child or their children were born. And the other greatest of days is the wedding day. It's the same with the first and second advent. The first advent culminates in a baby's birth and the second advent culminates in a wedding day, which brings us to the fourth and final reason for hallelujah. Reason number four, hallelujah, because the marriage of the lamb has come. In verse 7, we read, Let us be glad 
and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. So you know that moment in a wedding when no one has seen the bride yet, but you know she's close by. You can tell because the mood changes. The music changes. Everybody knows she's about to appear all radiant in white. This is that moment in Revelation. And we pattern our own weddings after this. But we won't see the bride until chapter 21. This scene is one of anticipation. And yet the joy of the marriage is fully present. So if you're like me, you've been picturing this through the lens of our culture and the weddings that you've attended, maybe your own wedding. But the, web, the, the wedding imagery used here in Revelation and the imagery that Jesus used when he talked about himself as the bridegroom was not the imagery of 21st century Western weddings. It was that of first century Jewish weddings, and those details matter a lot. You see, in ancient Jewish culture, there were three steps to getting married. There was the betrothal, the preparation, and then finally, the marriage feast or the marriage supper. So, first, the groom, along with the best man, would leave the father's house and would come to where the bride was. And there, he would negotiate the purchase price of the bride. Once this transaction was finalized, then the betrothal, the marriage, was technically in effect, even though they did not yet live together. One of my favorite biblical scholars and teachers um, by the name of Daryl Johnson captures the essence of this really well. He says, she, the bride, was declared to be consecrated to the groom, set apart exclusively for him. A new covenant was established between them, sealed by the drinking of a cup of wine over which a betrothal benediction was pronounced, this cup is a new covenant. I hope the dots are connecting right about now. We do this every week. We rehearse this reality when we are taking communion together. As God's people, we're remembering and celebrating our betrothal to the Lamb who has already paid the purchase price for us. Now, in the Jewish custom, at this point, the groom would then depart for a period of time, about 12 months. The bride and groom during this time would not see each other, and the groom would be busy preparing a room for his bride in his father's house. So in John 13, at the Last Supper, Jesus takes up a cup of wine, and he's so intentional with his words. He says, this is the new covenant in my blood. And then he tells his disciples that he's leaving. John 14, starting in verse 1, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Can you hear what he's promising? A groom does not miss his wedding day. A groom comes for his bride. And we, the people of God, who, as Revelation says, are holding to the testimony of Jesus, we are the bride altogether. So during this time of separation, what's the bride doing? The bride is preparing herself for the wedding. She's living in a state of preparedness. There's a fascinating tension in the text here. You might have noticed it. The text says at the end of verse 7 that the bride has prepared herself. But then, next sentence, it says, She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. The fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Or as the NASB puts it, it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So who is responsible for the preparation of the bride? Does the bride of Christ make herself ready? Or does the groom give something to the bride to make her ready? Who's doing the work, the bride or Jesus? This tension isn't just here in these verses. It's throughout the New Testament. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul writes, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work for his good purpose. Then again, Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Three chapters later, Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. And then Paul goes on to say that this mystery is profound. And it is. Marriage wasn't just a helpful metaphor that Jesus picked up on and used to teach. It's the other way around. God gave marriage so that we could better understand the bedrock reality of our own existence into eternity future, our relationship with Christ. And so the answer to the question, who's responsible for the preparation of the bride, it's one of those great tensions in Scripture that we don't try to resolve. We hold it tight. The answer is both. And it's a beautiful mystery of how the Holy Spirit works in and through us, conforming us to the image of Christ. And so then finally, we come to the third step of a Jewish wedding, which was the marriage feast. The bride knew approximately when the groom would come, but not the day or the hour. It was a surprise. And when he came for her, traditionally at night with the whole wedding party in tow, a great feast would commence, which would last for days and days and days. And from then on, the bride and groom would be united, never to be parted again. That's why our passage ends the way that it does. The angelic being tells John to make sure he records this. He says, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. 
And today, by virtue of hearing these words from Revelation, there's not a person in this room who has not received their invitation to this glorious marriage feast of the Lamb. And you'll notice that it's not called the marriage feast of the King of Heaven or the marriage feast of the Son of God. It's the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is because this is the basis of our union to Christ. It's that he took our place and endured the wrath of God for our sin on our behalf. He is the sacrificial Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That was the purchase price for the bride. The hymn says, From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. And at the beginning of this chapter, we read about God's justice coming upon the evil of this world in judgment. But God's wrath is not something only reserved for those really bad people out there who really deserve it. We deserve it. Our sin deserves God's wrath, yours and mine. And those who are part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we're not better people than all the rest. Jesus did not go out into the world seeking a bride like humans be, human beings do. He wasn't looking for the one who was suited for him, the least sinful, most well-behaved, religious, virtuous, beautiful, talented, accomplished. The ones that Jesus sought out were the ones who knew they were hopeless, helpless, lost, and broken in their own sin, and so they responded with repentance to the love and the grace that Jesus showed them. By contrast, it was those who took great pride in their own relative goodness, in their eyes, who were in conflict with Jesus most often. They couldn't see how great their sin was, and so they remained unmoved by the matchless glory of God standing right in front of them in human flesh. And it's still like this today. Those who are part of the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, we are sinful people who respond in faith to his offer to save us from God's wrath. Those ever trusting that his sacrifice was completely sufficient and who are holding, using Revelation's words, who are holding tightly to the testimony of Jesus and are worshiping him as Lord and King. So through its symbolism, Revelation has shown us two women, a prostitute and a bride. They couldn't be farther apart, a more significant contrast, and they represent the future of all people. You can't be an outside third party. There's no third option. And I pray today that your heart longs for the joy of the bride, of the marriage feast of the Lamb. John was so overwhelmed by the beauty he was beholding that he fell at the feet of an angel in worship. And the angel rebuked him and corrected him and said, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And likewise must our response be to worship God. And to hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Amen. At this time, we're going to observe communion together. And so we'll wait for the worship team to come up until after. 
And by the way, if you did miss up picking up a communion cup on your way into the sanctuary, please feel free to do that now. I won't be offended if you get up. And as you do, I have a few more words to bring together that scene at the Last Supper and this moment in Revelation. So when our Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, it was during Passover, the Last Supper. And when we look at the words he spoke during that Last Supper, it's so clear that he was thinking about the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now the disciples were rightly celebrating looking back at God's deliverance from Egypt, but Jesus was also looking forward. And at the end of the meal, Jesus taught them to do the same thing. Now, traditionally, during the Passover meal, those gathered around the table, interestingly enough, would have sung through the Hallel Psalms, those psalms filled with hallelujahs. The account of the Last Supper in Matthew 26 tells us that that's precisely what Jesus and his disciples did. It says, they sang a hymn before they departed for the Mount of Olives, which means that as Jesus was setting out, walking out to go pay the purchase price for his bride, he did so with the melody of that final hallelujah. And the taste of the bread and the cup still lingering. Jesus had given a promise. He said, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine from now on until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And until that day, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, remembering the body and the blood of Christ, not with sadness, but with joy. We drink and we eat with anticipation of the marriage feast yet to come. But like all marriage feasts and celebrations, it's reserved for those who have responded to the wedding invitation. So if that's not you today, if you're not trusting in Jesus, please don't participate. Use this time instead to reflect. But for all who have accepted and are holding tightly to the testimony of Jesus and are part of the bride, altogether betrothed to the lamb, take now the bread into your hand. And hear these words from Matthew 26. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Let's take it and eat together with thankful hearts. And then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's drink together. Church, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Lord God, we join our praises this morning to that chorus of hallelujahs, and we pray that you would fill us with joy. Give us fresh eyes to behold the bridegroom in the light of his glory. Lord, I pray especially for anyone who is considering this wedding invitation, but 
is unsure of their own response to it, oh, I pray, let no one's heart be unmoved by such an invitation. Lord Jesus, make our hearts long for the wedding feast. Give us faith to respond today in obedience, endurance, and worship. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.